Amen. Thank you, Jake and Emily. That's a wonderful song. I remember growing up, and some of you may know evangelist Ron Comfort and uh, his music assistant, uh, Larry Brubaker. And uh, Ron Comfort would come to our church regularly for special meetings, and he would often sing A Child of the King. And then uh, we, we bought uh, one of his records, uh, uh, vinyls. They're, they're back, so now the young people know what we're talking about. And uh, we bought one of his records, and uh, that was one of the songs that was on there, and I remember listening to that uh, many a time uh, growing up, and uh, just a, a special song, and what a wonderful time uh, being able to sing that song together. John chapter 14, John chapter number 14, I've entitled this morning's message, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled. We are in troublesome times. We are in a day and age where there seems to be trouble on every side. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's just where, where we are at, where God has called us. And really, though we see so many troubles from so many different angles, in so many different places, trouble in politics, trouble in homes, trouble in the, the streets of our cities with crime, trouble in mental health, just so many areas. Though there are all these magnified troubles, and magnified some in the sense that now we live under the burden of a thousand headlines. Because we have 24-7 news. We carry the news around with us in our pockets. And we have to discipline ourselves now not to do, and I just learned a new term uh, just recently, doom scrolling. Doom scrolling. It's where you mindlessly scroll on your phone or on your computer, on your screen, endlessly, mindlessly, sometimes for hours. And we can doom scroll through all the news, through all the terrible headlines, and we have to understand that some of these 24-7 news stations, they, they make money off of negativity. So we have to understand that there is a marketing technique to some of the negativity in the headlines. And we can, if we doom scroll and we get so caught up in the negativity, we can become troubled on the inside. There is trouble in the disciples at this moment, in this context, they don't even completely realize all the trouble that they are about to enter into. Jesus is trying to prepare them. I think they had some understanding. I think they had some grasp. And again, I, I can't help but think as a parent, we, we prepare our children or as a grandparent, we're helping our grandchildren maybe. And we're trying to prepare them and we try not to be overly negative at the same time, we're trying to warn them about certain dangers that are out there. And I know sometimes our children, maybe our grandchildren, they get, they get tired of us constantly teaching and warning and admonishing. And, and, and hopefully we're still praising and patting them on the back and giving them hugs and telling them we love them and, and, and those positive things. But we have to do a fair amount of warning because there is trouble. And sometimes... Young people, in their immaturity, they don't fully understand all the trouble that is out there. Some of the things that we are finding in our culture that are just trouble covered up with what might appear pleasure, fun, or attractive. 
but it's the passing pleasures of sin that is talked about in Hebrews 11. And there's poison, there's trouble underneath. Now the trouble that Jesus was preparing the disciples for was the fact that Christ was that later that night. He was going to go to the cross. He was going to be crucified. He was going to be taken to the, the courts, to the kangaroo courts, where he would be murdered, where he would be crucified for the sins of the world, for our sins. He would rise again. He would ascend into glory. And then, yes, he would give the Holy Spirit to all believers, Acts chapter 2, but the apostles were to be facing trouble in the world. And Jesus was preparing them for it. They were going to be the apostolic gifts to the early church to preach and to proclaim and to take the truth and declare it all around the world. Them as apostles and the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, and then others and eventually us today. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, eventually in the message a little later. But Jesus is sensing some anxiety among the apostles. He knows some of the things that they are about to face, and they don't fully grasp, they don't fully realize, but they're starting to sense a little bit of this. And so in verse number 1 of John 14, he gives them words of assurance. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Circumstances all around us can be cause for worry. The disciples had some anxiety. There even appears to be some confusion. In John 12 and John 13, they had heard Jesus talk about dying. He even said in John 13 that one of them would betray him, Judas, leaving them not even fully understanding, grasping that Judas was the betrayer. He specifically told Peter at the end of chapter 13, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, at the end of chapter 13, he specifically told Peter that he would deny him three times. Peter, remember, he was bragging about how he would never deny Christ. He was bragging about how he would be the strong one. He would stand up for Christ. He would never leave Christ. And yet Jesus had to rebuke Peter and even prophesy of how he would deny Christ three times before the cock crows. All of these things, no doubt, created some measure of anxiety, some measure of confusion for the disciples. Jesus knew that in just a short time, as I've already mentioned, Jesus knew that he would be crucified, he would be murdered. He would die on the cross for our sins. He knew the disciples' faith would be tested like it had never been tested before. This word troubled here in verse number one, it literally means stirred or agitated. I am a coffee lover. I'll admit, I'm a coffee snob. And uh, I, I, I have an abundance of coffee at my house. Whole bean, ground coffee. We've, we've got wonderful coffee shops around Lafayette. Uh, I'll just, I'm not trying to put a, a plug in for Copper Moon, but I've, I've really enjoyed uh, Copper Moon, they've kind of replaced uh, another coffee shop down in Indianapolis where we're from. They've kind of replaced uh, that coffee shop as my new, my new favorite coffee shop. But we have a, it's not the technical term for this, but we have an agitator that we, a battery-operated agitator that we 
stick down in our coffee, you add a little bit of cream, or if you ruin your, your, your coffee with, you know, like hot chocolate powder or something like that, uh, if you ruin your coffee with all kinds of other uh, frou-frou kind of, of things, I put a little bit of half and half in my coffee and then I agitate my coffee with that little battery-operated agitator. It stirs it up and it does a great job. And we can be stirred up, agitated. We can feel like this world just has us and is just spinning us around with all the trouble, with all the trials, with all the anxieties, everything, so much going on around us. And we have to be careful. Notice he says in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. If we are not careful, our heart will become agitated and stirred, and we will get our eyes off of Jesus, we'll become doubtful, we'll become discouraged, we'll become despondent, and we will not be effective for the Lord. And it can even cause us to fall into sin and to look to other things besides Jesus Christ to calm our spirit, to calm our souls, and we'll be disappointed When Jesus is saying, I am enough, let not your heart be troubled. Our heart is the entire inner man, the mind, the will, the emotions. And if we are agitated, if we're stirred up by the trouble of this world, we'll get our eyes off of Jesus. We'll begin to look to other things. We'll become despondent. We'll become discouraged. We'll become doubtful. We'll we'll even fall into sin. We'll begin to be disobedient. And we'll find our souls, our spirit, our whole heart, our inner man is not being satisfied by Christ and the Word of God. Philippians 4 and verse number 6, we know the verse well. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Verse number 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious about anything. Let the peace of God rule in our hearts. And that's essentially what Jesus is telling us, telling his disciples in the historical context. And obviously by the inspiration of God and preserved for us today, he's speaking to us, let not your heart be troubled. We have this assurance in Christ. We should have complete confidence in Christ. Four statements Jesus will make here in these following verses that help us in this assurance, that help us in this confidence that we have in Christ. He says, ye believe in God, believe also in me. That's verse number one. These are two imperatives. These are commands. And they inspire equal confidence in both God and Christ. To have confidence in Christ is to have confidence in God himself. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. A second statement that he gives is, I go to prepare a place for you. Verse number two, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. There is something about home, isn't there? Something special. You go on a trip, you travel, I think often of, of college, and now with Emily coming and going to college. There's something about a long trip, and you're driving, and maybe there's traffic, maybe there's 
something that happens along the way and it just seems like it takes forever. And then you pull up in the driveway, you walk in the house, you give mom and dad a hug or whatever the case may be. Or maybe uh, now uh, for us, maybe it's not so much you know, giving mom and dad a hug. It's for us, maybe it's our, our, our sofa chair and our remote control <laughs> or a cup of coffee. We sit down and we're home. There's something about being home. There's something special about it. And this is not our home. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And Jesus is preparing that place. I go to prepare a place for you. God's house has many mansions, literally dwelling places. Now we get real focused on that word mansions. But literally, it just means dwelling places. And some of us, we have in mind the mansion that we hope that Jesus is building for us. 16 rooms, 25 bathrooms, a fishing pond in the backyard, woods for hunting, the shopping mall right next door with discount prices, all of the parking that we could possibly need out front, and it never has to parallel park. That's the room, that's the home, that's the mansion that we envision in our minds. And we, we think that sometimes we deserve that, that we are owed that. And we have to be careful. Jesus is preparing the exact home that we rightfully deserve. As we are laying up treasures in heaven, as we are seeking first the kingdom of God, as we are making him preeminent, as we are walking worthy of the calling wherewith we are called. But you know what? It's really not about 16 bedrooms and 25 bathrooms, woods and a fishing pond, perfect parking. It's really not about that. It's about being with our Savior. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus said, there is a home I'm preparing for you, a room, a dwelling place with Me. You're troubled right now, troubled on every side. Your heart is tempted to be anxious, to be agitated, to be stirred up. But look beyond this life. Look to glory. There is a dwelling place, a mansion, a home I'm preparing for you. You will be in my presence. Yes, I will be crucified. Yes, I will rise again and ascend up in the glory. Yes, you will be given and eventually he'll teach them about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But his physical presence will be gone. They will be taken and they will be scattered for a while, but then they will come together and they will be ministers of God. They will be preachers of righteousness. They will turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ by his power. But they will not have the physical presence of Christ, but Christ promises Live for me, be faithful, because I'm preparing a place for you. And then he says another statement. I will come again and receive you unto myself. Verse number three. Christ will return. He says, yes, I will go away. I will physically leave. I will ascend up into glory, but I am promising that I will return. Jesus says, I will return to receive those who belong to me. It's the illustration, as they would have in their minds remembered and thought of, the illustration of a Jewish wedding, a bride and groom. Again, we are not used to this in our culture. A bride and groom, they 
They get engaged. We were at the Creation Museum uh, a few weeks ago, and we looked across the pond, across the, the little lake there, and we saw a, a couple upon a bridge uh, overlooking the lake. And uh, we were talking, Kelly and I were talking, and we're like, you know what? They, they look like they are in a romantic state, if you know what I mean. They were, they were, they were, they were romantic, okay? And we began to talk, like, maybe, I wonder if he's getting ready to propose. And sure enough, I don't know, again, I, this, this may be the thing to do now, but it looked like maybe his family or her family came around, came down the sidewalk. They left the bridge, and we were hoping that they would get off the bridge because we wanted to, the, 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 the kids, the kids, we had, we had a picturesque moment we wanted to have the kid, for the kids on the bridge. They were taking pictures and stuff. Well, anyway, they went up. They went, up the, they went up the stairs, they went up the stairs, and sure enough, we look over, and he gets down on his knee, and he proposes, and the family's there, and they're all taking pictures, and of course, even across the lake, we're all clapping, and, <laughs> you know, and, and we, we, we love those kinds of moments, and I'm sure that was all over social media for, for them. Special moment. But in our culture, you know, we're, we're used to that kind of an engagement, and then, there's the, the groom who is uh, saving his money for the honeymoon. The bride begins looking for her dress and begins all the, the preparations for the wedding. In Jewish culture, there would often be an arranged type of marriage. There would be involvement. There would be a bride price, a dowry. There would be some sort of covenant established. And the engagement actually had the legal standing of a, of a, of a marriage. It would take a divorcement, a legal divorcement, for that engagement to be broken. Joseph and, and Mary are an example of where Joseph was uh, tempted to put Mary away privately, break the engagement legally. Uh, but obviously he was told by God that, uh, that Mary was a child by the Holy Spirit. But in the Jewish culture, as that engagement was set in place, the groom would go back to his father's house and begin to build a room, preparing a place for his bride. It usually was about a year, not exactly. We have dates that we set, and we mark them, and we're preparing for that date. It wasn't necessarily that way in Jewish culture. There would be roughly a year, not exactly sure when, but when the groom thought it was time, he would come for his bride. There would be an announcement, and then he would take his bride and go back to his father's house, to a room that had been prepared for them. And then, after the, the marriage was consummated, then they would have a wedding feast for a week. And we often illustrate that in eschatology with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus is assuring them, he's giving them Peace. He's giving them confidence. He's saying, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself. I will take you to my father's house. I have a dwelling place, a mansion prepared for you. You have a, a, a ministry now. You have service for me. You need to be occupying till I come. You need to have your lamps trimmed and ready. But I will come again and I will receive you unto myself. It's an illustration of, of the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4. As the bride of Christ, we are to be listening for the trumpet, for the voice of the archangel. 
And the rapture will take place one day. And we look around and we say, it's got to be soon. We don't know for sure, but there sure seems to be signs of the time, so to speak. There's nothing else prophetically on God's prophetic calendar that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. And so he could come at any time and he could receive us unto himself. Are we ready? Do we have treasures laid up in heaven? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God? Is Christ preeminent right now? But also he says, And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. A fourth statement that we look at here in this passage. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Christ had made it clear where he was going and how to get there. He was assuring them once again that he had prepared the way. And yes, he was to still, in immediate context, still yet to go to the cross, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again, to ascend up into glory. But Jesus was saying, I have prepared the way. I have been teaching you. I have been preparing you. And you know. You know the way to eternal life. You know the way to be received to my Father's house, to be with me. I will come and receive you. I have prepared the way. I am preparing the way. And I will fulfill this promise. And you have been taught. You know the way. And then Jesus makes it absolutely clear, but there's a little bit of a parenthesis here. We see the assurance. We see, let not your heart be troubled. We see these four statements, but then we see an exclusiveness. We see here, Jesus is saying, you know the way, I have taught you the way, I am preparing the way, I will prepare the way, it will be prepared for you, I will receive you unto myself. But then there's an exclusiveness. But right before we get to that in verse number 6, we we read in verse 5 that Thomas, often referred to as Doubting Thomas, now I think sometimes Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap. I do think that Thomas has sometimes an expression of doubt. But are we not many times just like Thomas? Before we get too critical of Thomas, we have to look at ourselves because sometimes we're doubting. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Thomas, and no doubt probably some others in the room that night, were were struggling still a little bit with some doubts. And we can be that way. Lord, I know, but help thou my unbelief. I believe, but help thou my unbelief. Gideon did this when God told Gideon specifically what he was to do and promised that he'd be with him, and Gideon still has his doubts. Moses, when he was called, he struggled. I, I can't speak. What, what, are you gonna, what signs are you going to give me, Lord, to prove that you've called me? We see good, godly men and women of faith Struggling even with some doubts, with even some human uh, inhibitions, uh, humanly speaking. Uh, how can this happen? What, what, what else can you do for us, Lord, to, to, to really prove, to really show, uh, to really demonstrate, to verify one more time almost, it's like Thomas is saying. Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Still a little bit of lingering doubts. Even after all of Christ's teachings, demonstrations of his deity, there still seems to be some struggles. 
And again, let's not be too hard on Thomas because we can be the same way. But in his compassion and also in declaring the truth regarding himself, Jesus makes a very exclusive statement. Now in our culture today, it's all about inclusivity. Let's all just go along to get along. And I joke around with the phrase, let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya together. This whole ecumenical flavor that seems to be so pervasive in our culture, an ecumenical mood that is all across what seems like religious or religiosity, various religions. We see ecumenical prayer meetings and ecumenical worship. It even goes on 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 campus, not that far from here. There's advertisements for ecumenical worship services. And you see the bumper sticker, coexist. On and on and on we could go. And we have a world today, a culture today, that celebrates and preaches tolerance. Tolerance for everything but the truth, sad to say. Tolerance for everything except for God and his word and Jesus Christ. Oh, there's a tolerance for a a Jesus of man's making. There's a tolerance for a Jesus that's made after man's image. There's talk of of a mountain peak out there somewhere. And we're all on our various paths. And we'll all eventually get to God and we're just going to get there on our own, on our own paths. But Jesus makes it emphatically clear that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Christ plainly stated, he is the only way to God. To know God, a person must know Jesus Christ. This is the sixth of seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John, around which John writes his Gospel. We have to understand that no one gets saved apart from the Word of God. Romans 10 and verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And no one gets saved without knowing Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. The written Word reveals the living Word, Jesus Christ. Christ is the living Word of which the written Word is all about. John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John 1 and verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ is the very expression of God Himself. He is God. Christ is saying, I am the only way to God because I am God in the flesh. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Christ plus nothing, minus nothing. I said it in Sunday school, I'll repeat it again here. There are people, prominent people, people who are very religious, very moral, very conservative, but their faith is not in Christ, in Christ alone for their salvation. I heard one in a podcast just recently, say our faith must be in Jesus plus the church. A lot of people who believe that way. Now I believe in Jesus, but I need to add my works. 
Jesus can get me so far, but I need my good efforts and my good works to get over the finish line. Jesus can get me 90 yards on the 100-yard dash, but I need my own efforts to get that last, last 10 yards. Dangerous thinking. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ plus nothing, minus nothing. Faith in him and him alone, and his finished work on the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection. Acts 4 and verse number 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 16 and verse 31, As the Philippian jailer came, as the prison doors were open, and he was wondering what was going to happen to him, and he was afraid that he was going to die because the prisoners were going to escape, And he realizes in that moment his spiritual condition, because if he's going to die, where is he going to spend eternity? He was gripped with conviction and he asked, what must I do to be saved? And the apostle replied, well, just work really hard, get as far as you can, and then Jesus will help you the rest of the way. Is that what he said? Did he he say, go out and, and do some really good social things? Be a really good guy. You know, as a matter of fact, go beg to the Roman centurion or to whoever who was in charge of the prison and, and then maybe he'll let you, maybe he'll, he'll give you a little grace and mercy and help you get away with this one and, and then just promise him you'll do better next time and then hopefully when you get to heaven and you stand before Peter at the pearly gates, your good will outweigh your bad. Is that what he said? No. When the Philippian jailer cried out, what must I do to be saved? The apostle answers, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we know the verse as well. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3 and verse number 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And then Romans 4 and verse number 5, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted. For righteousness. Salvation is clearly by faith alone in Christ alone. Christ makes a very exclusive statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. False religions, they want to add works. They want to add baptism. They want to add church tradition and sacraments. They want to add some sort of self-righteous acts. But all our righteousness is as filthy rags, we're told. Christ is not only the way, he is the truth. One commentator put it this way, the life, the purity, and the teaching of Jesus Christ was the most complete and perfect representation of the things of the eternal world that has been or can ever be presented to man. Christ is the truth, and Christ is the life. He is the only source, the only source of eternal life. Life. There was the day in the wilderness where they were, the children of Israel had sinned and complained and rebelled against God, and the poisonous snakes came into the camp. And people were being bitten and dying, and there was only one way that they could be healed, that they could survive. That was to look 
at the serpent on the pole, representing Christ on the cross. They had to look in faith, believing. And Jesus is saying, I am the only way of salvation. I'm the only way to eternal life. And I am the truth. That is a statement that is bold and reveals the authority and the deity of Jesus Christ. Once again, as we have learned, Jesus Christ in this statement, this exclusive statement, once again, every man, every person has to come to a point of decision regarding Jesus Christ. And either Jesus is a liar and a lunatic, or he is the very Son of God. He is who he says he is, and he is. He is the only way. He is the only way to God. He is the only way to eternal life. He is the truth. And no man cometh unto the Father but by him. So we've seen assurance. We've seen even exclusiveness. And then, once again, we come back to a word of confidence. We see a word of confidence. We come down, and, and really, it's, it's verses 7 through 14, and then eventually Jesus will talk about the Holy Spirit, beginning at verse 15. But we see confidence. Christ brings the disciples back and us back to who he is, to what he has done, and the words that he has spoken. And we can confidently depend upon Christ because of who he is, because of his works, and because of the words that he has spoken. Once again, we see a disciple speak up, but let's go back again to verse number 7. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Speaking again of the deity of Christ, Christ being God. But verse 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. He once again, we see an apostle struggling a little bit. Show us the Father. One, one more time, can you, can you give us one more assurance, one more confidence? And again, we can't be too critical of Thomas or Philip. We struggle in our faith. We struggle with doubts. Especially when we're tested, when we're tempted. Especially when there is a measure of persecution. As we are dealing with a culture that is denying biological realities. That is trampling upon the truth. That is rejecting Truth outright and even beginning some measure of persecution against us in our culture and using legal, different uh, legal means, various ways in which lawsuits are brought against believers for standing up for the truth of the Word of God. I don't know where that's going to eventually lead to here in America. There's talk of tax-exempt status being taken away. They can take our tax-exempt status away, but we're going to continue to proclaim the truth of the Word of God. Persecution, we don't know where it's going to end up. There are persecuted believers, even in the world today, and the persecution of early Christians, we don't know if that's ever going to return. We don't know if it's ever going to come to America. Those things sometimes bring some anxiety. It causes us to, 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 to struggle a little bit in our faith. 
We, we go about, we, we evangelize, we witness, we, we hand out a track, we, we share the, the gospel, and, and not everybody is very welcoming. And there's sometimes a, an attack upon our faith, and people belittle us, and people make fun of us, and how can you believe that? And our doubts come up, and we struggle in our minds. And there's some anxiety, and Jesus is preparing, again, the apostles and preparing us Because the apostles are going to face this. They're going to be facing martyrdom in just a matter of days and weeks and months. Most, if not all, the apostles would eventually die as martyrs for Jesus Christ. There is still some lingering doubt here. And again, I don't want to be too hard on Philip, but he saith, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And what does Jesus bring them back to? His words, his works. In his witness, who he is. They wanted maybe one more piece of evidence to be absolutely sure. But what does Jesus go? Where does, he, where does he take them? He says, you have already seen, you have already heard everything you need to know. Verse number nine, Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the father. And how sayest thou then show us the father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Verse number 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verse 12, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, Shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is saying, you have everything you need to live for me, to be faithful servants to minister the gospel, to do everything that I have called you to do. He brings them back to the witness of his life, to who he is, to his works, to his words. And he gives them confidence because they're going to go out and they're going to be his ambassadors. They're going to be his ministers, his servants. And again, that's where we are at. With the trouble around us, we can go forward with confidence in the word of God, in who Christ is. 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. God has given us everything we need for salvation and for living the Christian life. And Jesus says very clearly in this passage that as believers, God has given us work to do, service for him, and he backs it up with his very character, his very words, and his very works. He says, I've shown you. I've declared unto you. Now you are going to have an opportunity to go out and to do greater works than these. And once again, what happens as we read there in verse number 12, and greater works than these shall he do because I go into my Father. It's important for us to remember these greater works are not in power and wonder. This is not 
a call of God to miracle-working power. The apostles would have that for a short period of time until the scripture, the written word of God, was complete. Book of Revelation, John the Apostle, when he died in 90, 95 AD, that apostolic gift of signs and wonders went away. But what then are the greater works that God has called us to? Believers... Get this, believers, by the thousands, by the millions, by the tens of millions, have the privilege, by God's power, by the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory, we have the privilege, the responsibility, the calling, and the opportunity to serve God. And by the tens and the millions of believers, we will do more works in number than Jesus did on the earth during his earthly ministry or while he was alive. It's not saying, as some try to take it, that Jesus gives us a word faith where we can declare our destiny and we can bring our destiny into existence by the very words of our mouth as we exercise enough faith It's not saying that we are given miracle-working abilities. God does still do miracles. Yes, God is still sovereign, and God is able, and God is in in His providence able to do miraculous things. But He doesn't give miracle-working power to individuals. I've been called of God to be a preacher, but I don't have miracle-working power. Now, there are times I wish I did. Flat tire on the side of the road. I wish I could just say, presto, change and boom, the tire's inflated. I don't have that power. These televangelists, these famous celebrity preachers that are out there on the internet and on television who claim to have miracle-working power and they hit people in the head and send people in convulsions and wave their arms and people fall down, they're false teachers. And if you doubt What I'm saying, look at their doctrine. Their doctrine is wrong. So there's no way that they're doing anything like that by the power of God because their doctrine is wrong. Many of them will teach an entirely false doctrine, a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. So that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying the greater works is the privilege to serve the Lord by his power, to go out as ambassadors have the ministry of reconciliation, to share the gospel, to serve God by serving others. As we were reminded yesterday at the men's meeting, as Pastor Wilkerson preached, and he talked about how many believers, they, they have a, a, they're, they're fat in their knowledge, but they're skinny in their application. We, we, we sit and we soak and we sour when we should be sitting and soaking and then serving living for God, finding ways to minister the truth of the gospel, to minister to others, to be a blessing to others, to edify one another, to build one another up, to serve one another, as Jesus illustrated in John 13. Those are the greater works. And then we come down in verses 13 and 14, and one of the works is prayer. Isn't it interesting? He brings prayer into mind here. Ye shall ask in my name. That will I do. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. 
One of the works that we need to be busy about is prayer. Prayer is one of the hardest works of the Christian life. We get distracted. We get down on our knees if we can, or we sit, or we are in a bowed position in some way. And what happens? Our minds begin to wander. I got to do this. I got to do that. Oh, I forgot to call this person. Oh, I got to take care of this in, in the house, take care of this project. And we get so distracted. And what did the disciples later on that night, what were they doing? They're sleeping. And many times I'm guilty of that as well. I have great intentions. I'm praying fervently. And next thing I know, it's been 15 minutes and I'm snoring. Shame on me. And the disciples were later on snoring in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were asleep when they should have been praying. And this prayer that Jesus refers to here in his name, isn't that we take the name of Jesus like some magical words and we sprinkle the name of Jesus on our prayers and then we get whatever we want. Praying in Jesus' name means praying in submission to who Jesus is and praying according to his will that our hearts will be right. So no matter what the answer is, yes, no, or maybe, our heart is right with God and we will accept God's answer. doesn't mean that we don't pray for healing and we don't pray for physical or financial or other kinds of needs to be met. Sure we do. But in doing that, we're also preparing our hearts for whatever the answer is. Because we ultimately want God's will to be done. Our prayers must be given in faith, trusting in who Christ is. And trusting in God's will to be accomplished and for God to be glorified. Our prayers must not be selfish. Our prayers not, must not be about us, but about God and his glory. So we've seen in this passage, we've seen assurance, let not your heart be troubled. Does not prayer once again bring us back to how we keep our hearts from being stirred up and agitated? Prayer does that. We've seen in this passage the exclusivity of salvation, the the exclusiveness in what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But we also see, once again, confidence. Confidence in who God is and who Christ is. In his witness, in his works, in his words. Maybe have confidence in the Bible. Confidence in who Christ is. And live out his truth confidently for Christ and for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we're humbled by these truths. We're also encouraged and assured once again that our hearts do not have to be troubled. That we can trust you, that you are preparing a place for us, that you will come again. And that you have given us the way. The way not just to eternal life through Christ and Christ alone, but also the way to live right now. As believers, live obediently, live in reverence and honor to your name. Lord, I pray that you will do your work in our hearts, that, Lord, you will convict, that, Lord, you will encourage, that you will comfort, that you will strengthen us, that, Lord, our faith will increase, and that we'll be more obedient, be more faithful, and that, Lord, we will be a strong testimony for others, that we'll have opportunity with the gospel of Jesus Christ that, Lord, we can see others saved and come into this same place of encouragement, of confidence, of assurance. And, Lord, dwell with you in all eternity. 
in your presence as you have promised in your word. Lord, we thank you for these words. Lord, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts as we sing this closing hymn in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand to your feet and find in your hymnals, 186, A Child of the King. We sang this so well just a short time ago. We'll sing 186 as Jake comes and leads us in stanza number one of A Child of the King. If God has spoken to you, to your heart, you can do business with the Lord even as we sing. If we can help you in any way after the service, please let us know. We'll be happy to take the word of God or to pray with you. But we'll sing now as Jake comes and leads us in stanza number one of A Child of the King. <laughs> 